Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 49 here. And today, well, I've got some questions that you guys have sent in, but I also want to focus a little bit on a main topic uh, about bow wood. In a recent episode of the Wood Talk podcast, somebody asked us about making a bow. And none of us are bowyers. None of us have any idea how to make a bow. You know, we could probably guess based on just our own woodworking experience. But ultimately, the question of what species to use comes up here. And Bowwood, I just think it's a great opportunity to talk about what we've learned on this podcast about using the technical properties of wood to identify the appropriate species for a job. So I'm just going to use that. I think a lot of times we can learn more um, by in context rather than talking about abstract ideas. Let's talk about a specific problem, in this case, the best wood to use to make a bow. And go from there. It should be an interesting discussion. But other than that, we've got some news stories you guys have sent in. We've got a little bit of talk about veneer, um, some wood movement questions that have come in in, um, after my wood movement episode. So it should be kind of a varied episode with a little bit of focus on that bow wood discussion. So as always, I do want to thank people for continuing to support this show. Uh, Every week we get new people that uh, join the Patreon campaign. If you go to patreon.com slash lumber update, you can support the show there. A dollar, two dollars, twenty five dollars, doesn't matter. It's all greatly appreciated. And I do want to apologize to my listeners. This show is a bit late in coming out. I had a show queued up and ready to go and yeah, it disappeared. (laughs) I still don't know what happened. A drive crash, something like that. But needless to say, I had a show ready to record or ready to publish and the gremlins ate it. Uh, Does not matter how many years I do this podcasting thing, stuff like that still happens. Um, So I apologize. This is a bit later than the bi-weekly release that I had hoped for. So yeah, I will strive to do better in the future um, and, and try to keep these coming out on a more regular basis. So let's just jump into things right now. You guys may remember, ooh, near the beginning of this, might have been in the first five episodes or so, I talked about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. Um, Believe it or not, that was back in 2019. And I started to speculate on how they might rebuild it. Would they go with a more modern interpretation or would they try to do an exact recreation of the French oak that was in the spire? Um, In La Forêt, I believe the French is the forest is what they called it. Well, it was decided um, quite some time ago that they were going to do uh, a reconstruction, um, a reproduction, I should say, and keep with the original solid wood timbers. Well, I've had many of you send me this story. I had this story pop up on my own radar, but they have started felling those oaks out in the French forest. And I talked about this, about how there were several um, old growth forests that had been originally managed and maintained for naval purposes. And uh, they have really begun tapping into that. And several stories have come out talking about this. One in particular from CNN was particularly interesting because they used drones to actually search the forest for the right types of trees. They had a, an algorithm programmed in for the search to find trees that had a three foot diameter that were free of defects. So basically it was searching for the bowl of the tree to find the ones they need. I can't remember. They need a lot of them. I think a hundred of them. I might be pulling that number out of nowhere. I know I've read that somewhere, but they need a lot of these trees and they've got to be big. They've got to be long, like 60 feet long in many instances. And um, of course, three inch, three, three inches, three feet in diameter. 
So they have begun felling them. And actually, as the recording of this, they may have them all already because the plan is to get them felled by the end of March, get them into drying mode so that they can begin the restoration come 2022. So it's a a longstanding process, but it's particularly interesting to see how this is being done and how modern technology is allowed to identify a specific tree. Not only that, it's a drone. So we often talk about um, leave no trace forestry. The damage that logging trucks and logging roads can cause into a forest can be quite substantial. So you may have the ability to go in and fell a certain number of trees, but you also might damage quite a bit of the forest just getting the tree to the trees and getting those logs out. Here's an example where there's absolutely no trace left for the search of the tree. They've identified here are you know, 20 suspects and they go out and inspect them in person, but they're on foot. And now you've determined here's a tree that will work for us. We know this is going to work with zero impact on the forest at this point. And then you can begin kind of stepping back from a civil cultural perspective and say, what will happen to the forest when this particular tree has been removed? It totally flips the script on how civil cultural management is done And it's very cool. I'm excited to see this. It's also really exciting to see that in this day and age, when we hear people talking about, oh, the wood's not the same as it was. Well, it is. There is some good stuff out there. And when you know specifically what you're looking for, they can be found, they can be felled um, uh, in a a healthy manner, in a sustainable manner, that's not going to damage the forest. And you can put you know, something like the Notre Dame Cathedral back together. So I, I just found that particularly exciting to see that things are moving forward on that. So I want to say thank you to the 20, 30 people that sent me that article from several different sources. There's even some video out there of some of these trees being felled. It's very cool. But let me skip ahead to some questions because I have a question that's directly related to this. They came in from Philip and he said that, uh, I thought I understood the basics of drying, but this, this Notre Dame Uh, French oak story. This puts my understanding into question. Trees that are three feet wide and will be left to dry for 12 to 18 months so the beams don't shrink or move once they're in place. And he's actually quoting directly uh, an article from a French newspaper there. Um, Philip asks, is this because they will dump a bunch of moisture initially, leave puddles, and then be dry enough so that once milled to final size and installed with wood movement in mind, there will be no issues? So his, his his um, question is really 12 to 18 months. Is that realistic to dry a three foot log? And this is a really good question, Philip, because the drying of wood in log form and drying of wood in board form, while they are the same process, it's a different product and a different result. So when we saw a log into boards, we're cutting across the fibers in a lot of ways. We're releasing a lot of tension, but we're also kind of decreasing the strength of the board it's of the wood itself by cutting all that tension while it's still in log form you've got complete concentric growth rings you know we know that you look at the end of the tree you see those rings those are annular growth rings while that circuit if you will is complete while those circles are complete you've got a very strong structure once you start cutting across those into boards you get a significant amount of warping and twisting that will occur because of those cut growth rings. They're, they don't have the same strength they had before. Moreover, when we start cutting things into boards, we're expecting flatter. 
you know, we want a board to be flat. We don't want a board to have twist. We're using it in a piece of furniture or using any construction in part of a wall or something like that. And we need that board to be flat. We have imposed a polygon, hopefully a rectangle or square on that particular board. And we want those square and flat faces. In the case of here, we're really talking about timber framing. We're almost talking about log building. While these logs will be squared off into cants when they're put into the structure of Notre Dame, they are left almost the same size. Imagine taking that three foot log and then just getting the largest cant you can out of that. What would that be? Maybe 24 inches square? No, no, can't be that much. 36 inches, I don't know. We'll just be optimistic and say 30 inches square. You're gonna lose some of it, obviously, in cutting off the rounded edges. But that's a like a 30 by 30 by 60 foot beam that's gonna go in here. It's also going to still have the pith in it. And a lot of people think, ooh, that's bad. You don't wanna have pith, that's awful. But there's such a term called a boxed heart beam where the pith is right down the center. And what that that's actually really good in timber framing because while checking will certainly occur as the log dries, it will occur on a more isometric basis. You'll get checks that open on all four faces, leaving the, the beam itself actually quite stable and quite uniform in its shape. So if you started with a square and it checks on one side, it will start to deform a little bit. But if it checks on all four sides, it still stays that 30 by 30 square. Now it will shrink a little bit due to moisture. And this is really what they're talking about. The 12 to 18 month period is about dropping the free water and really pulling that moisture content down. But the moisture content is still probably sitting, you know, 40%. After a couple of weeks when a lot of the water is drained out, over the course of a year, year and a half, you're going to see that moisture content drop down below 30%. Probably still be in the 20s, but it could very possibly be in the low 20s, depending on how it's stored, how much air is circulated through wherever these are, are drying. This is perfectly fine for timber framing. We don't need the same level of flatness and square that you would expect of a piece of furniture. There is going to be some twist. There is going to be some out of flat faces. That's not important. What we need is the greatest strength in the terms of reframing the forest in, in the cathedral and the spire. It's all about the strength that comes from that continuous grain running length to length. Essentially, they're putting trees back up in there. It's not boards. They're as close as you can get to a tree, and there'll be great strength in, in the structure that comes from that. So yes, there may still be a higher moisture content that someone who's building furniture would shy away from. In the case of this timber frame structure, it's not important. And it will continue to dry and drop moisture over the years and the decades. But the thing is, there's really no way that you could get a log like this to dry in any reasonable amount of time. Moreover, it's not really necessary. We don't need it to be six to 8% kiln dried because we don't need that level of stability that would come from a piece of furniture wood. It can warp, it can check, it can move around. Once it's already in place in the spire, it's not gonna affect anything. So yeah, um, it may seem like it's not very much time, but you'll actually find that most of the drying that occurs there has happened probably in the first 
three to four weeks while they've stored all these vertically. And just as a side note, I did a live stream on my Renaissance Woodworker YouTube channel where I talked about working with wet wood and I talked a lot about gravity drying, the storing of boards or logs vertically to let the free water drain out. Once that free water drains out, you've got a much, much drier piece that you can begin working with in most applications where you don't need that perfect flat and perfect square face like we often need in, in terms of furniture. So in this case, Philip, I think that number is spot on, if not a little bit longer than they probably need to begin the work that, that, that um, is required for reframing the spire. Great question, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Jason shared me an article on beetle kill pine and how the, the author of this article is actually linking it to the price rises that we're seeing due to COVID. Now I've certainly talked about um, the cost of lumber going up due to COVID. I've actually done multiple episodes on that. So Jason says, I tripped over this article about mountain pine beetles not dying off over the winter, contributing to sky high lumber prices. I'd love to hear if this is going to be quote, an excuse for lumber prices to stay where they are after vaccination puts COVID behind us. So first of all, I, I will link to this article because it is an interesting article. There's a lot of good information in here, but really it's kind of muddied. It's like they make 20 different points, but they don't really tie them together. You know, they're starting to say that climate change is causing the beetles not to die off. So the beetles have caused a greater amount of kill, reducing the amount of trees that are felled. That may be legitimate, but then they're trying to relate that to COVID and the COVID price spikes. And I, I don't quite see a continuous thread there. Maybe I didn't read it close enough, but I left that article feeling like a lot of good points made, but what's your point? <laughs> My point is... I don't think the lumber industry is going to need a lot of, quote, excuses to keep their prices high. First of all, it's going to be a long time after COVID's behind us. And let's just hope that COVID does go behind us. Let's hope that it doesn't drag on for several more years. I do, um, my prediction is just like we get flu shots annually, we will probably get COVID shots annually for at least some time. I don't know, could be wrong. I know nothing about any of that, <laughs> any of epidemiology or any of that stuff. So is that even the right word? Did I use the right word? I don't know. Obviously I know no, nothing what I'm talking about, but the point is the lumber industry and raw materials in general, lumber, steel, all these things, but especially lumber have been depressed for quite some time. Um, and especially when we look in North America at domestic species, so many of these have been really inexpensive and the prices have been kept down and driven down by um, people buying raw materials in very, very large quantities. What COVID has done is killed the supply chain. It's dramatically reduced the number of people felling the trees, the number of people sawing trees. It has been the perfect storm when it comes to manufacturers of machinery. So if you had a sawmill that went under and say you wanted to start a new sawmill, the waiting list on getting new sawmills, like saws and the various and sundry like forklifts and things like that, that the typical machines you'll find around a, around a sawmill or a lumberyard, the waiting list on those are incredibly long. Um, heck, I have a hard time buying an indoor bike trainer. <laughs> you can imagine when you're dealing with much, much more expensive machines manufactured in a lower quantity, how difficult it can be. So the ability for the sawmills to actually recover from this is, it's not there. The shipping and logistics side of things will start to clear up, but as that clears up and things begin to flow more readily, the lack of raw material is going to become very, very important. That's going to continue to keep the price inflated on lumber. 
Once things do start to return to normal, there's also going to be this long replacement cost period where people are just trying to get their inventory levels back to where they were before. And you always, when you sell something, need to think about what's it going to cost to actually put that back in place so I can continue to sell that. Those prices, that, that's going to keep that demand really, really high. It's going to keep those prices going up. We're also going to see a lot of Sawyers who remember when they used to be able to sell red oak for $2 more than they're selling it for. Um, and now we're seeing these prices driven up due to COVID and they're actually similar to what it used to be like 50 years ago. Um, you know, taking on inflation and things like that. So this is in some respects, it's a terrible correction, but it is a correction of the market. There are a lot of species of wood that have been kept at like 1950s prices, cost or rather, for a very, very long time. And while they don't need to go up dramatically, we could, we should, should have expected to see 20, 30, 40 cents a board foot changes on a lot of these species that just hasn't happened. So now that we've seen, you know, 120, 130% price increases in a lot of these, that will go down, but not to where it was before. And, and I think in a lot of ways for a very good reason, the margins in the lumber industry are so unbelievably tight that there needs to be a little bit more room to play with there. And I think it can be a very good thing for the sustainability of the industry itself, the infrastructure of the industry to have some of these prices not quite return to normal. Now realizing that I of course work in the industry and it's, you know, in my vested interest for us to get more money when, when, when we sell this lumber, we're not talking a lot. Uh, we're talking 10 to 20 cents on the board foot could make a huge difference when you're talking about thousands of board feet moved, tens of thousands of board feet moved. So I, I do think if you read this article, you may they're trying to make the case that COVID is not really what's driving these up. It's the just the, the disappearance of the raw stock because of things like beetle kill and climate change. That I think is one of about 100 variables that's affecting this. COVID was striking the match to the room that was already filled with, you know, propane <laughs> and now the bomb that has resulted from there. So it's going to be, I think, quite some time before we see prices return to where they were before, if at all. It just may not happen because, as I said, in some instances, it doesn't need to go back that low. Going back to those low prices actually makes it difficult for these sawmills to make a living and to sustain themselves. And, you know, if that happens, if they all continue to close, because before COVID came around, we were seeing the closure of sawmills left and right. Hundred-year-old lumber companies shuttering their doors, going bankrupt. That's not the sign of a healthy industry. That's a sign of people that are not getting by week after week, month after month, year after year, slowly losing a little bit, dipping into the savings every single time to the point where they finally have to, to shut out their doors. It's going to mean, you know, a change in the industry. Certainly we need to be more efficient and better at what we're doing so we control our costs, but raw materials always get beat down. When things get tight, everybody goes back and tries to beat down the cost of raw materials. And that has happened for decades and decades to the point where it is actually not sustainable to fell lumber, saw it into boards and sell it at the prices that were being dictated by the market prior to the COVID explosion. I've spoken about this in exotic markets as well, where the African mahogany market almost died because nobody wanted to cut it because they couldn't make any money doing it. They were losing um, dollars per board foot every time they felled the tree because the labor involved and the cost that was being demanded on the market, it wasn't worth any 
wasn't worth the time. So they walk right by the African mahogany trees. Suddenly there was this huge shortage in African mahogany because nobody was cutting the stuff down. And they continue to say, why would I cut it down when you're not going to pay me for it? So yeah, I'm a woodworker too, guys. I don't like the cost of lumber as much as, as the next guy, but uh, you know, if it's not a sustainable pricing structure, the whole thing's going to go belly up and there won't be any lumber. We'll all have to become Matt Cremona and build our own bandsaws and fell trees in our own backyard, which, you know, some might say that would be a glorious world and it could be, but I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. (laughs) So thank you, Jason, for sharing that Um, particularly interesting article. It is worth reading. As I said, a little bit of a muddied conclusion, but still there's some good points being made in there. So let's move to my main topic here and talking about Bowood. So anytime I get a question or somebody has a question about what would be a good species for this application. Inevitably, if you do a little bit of Googling and you can say, we'll use this bow example. If you were to Google, what is the best wood for a bow? There's going to be answers and there's going to be immediately people are going to say, Osage orange, uh, English yew, you know, the, the um, uh, English made long bows and dominated, you know, all throughout the 12th, 13th, 11th century with English yew long bows. So yew is going to be listed as one of those prime species for making a bow. Osage orange is also in France known as bois d'arc or bow wood. So inevitably you'll find a species or two in a forum, in a, in an article or something that's going to pop up and people are going to say, that's the species you should use. So when you run across that, it's often a good idea to look at that particular species. What is it? A, if this is the prime species for making a bow, if Osage orange is the prime species, if hickory is the prime species for making an axe handle, look at the technical properties of it and think about the application and then try to figure out what, what are the technical properties that make that so good. So what is a bow, right? It's a stick of wood that is bent you know, into a curve, a string is attached between them and an arrow is shot from that. What do you need for that? You need a piece of wood that when it bends is not going to break, but you also need a wood that is stubborn, that is stiff and rigid because when you bend it, if it's real easy to bend, well, that string is not going to have a lot of force. The bow string itself, it's not going to take a lot of force to bend that bow into the curved shape. So it's not really going to throw that arrow forward. But the stiffness of the wood wanting to, while you've bent it into the curved shape, but it wants to go back straight. It wants to snap back to its straight form. That force, that rigidity, that stiffness is what actually drives the arrow forward. It's what holds that bowstring super, super taut. And when you pull the bowstring back, the stiffness, the rigidity of the bow, the, the wood in the bow wanting to turn flat again is what's going to throw that arrow forward at a high velocity. So you could say, you know, I want a wood that's going to bend easily and not break. Well, that's only half the equation. It, it needs to want to return to its straight form. It needs to be stiff, but I should say stiff, but not rigid. If one could say that rigid would be more brittle, you want it to have the flexibility, but also stubbornness, you know, to provide that force to throw the arrow forward. Well, what are those numbers? Well, modulus of rupture is the bending strength. How much force does it require to bend um, before it breaks? The higher the number there means the more force you can apply before that breaks. A higher bending strength number is going to be a good thing in this particular case because we want to bend this without it breaking. And obviously, the more we bend it, um, 
possibly the better, right? So if it only bends a little ways before it breaks, that's no good. Modulus of elasticity is the stiffness. Wait a minute. Did I just mix those up? Yes, I did. No, no. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm right. Sorry. Modulus of elasticity is also stiffness. MOE is stiffness. How much force will it exert to snap back to its straight form? So we want uh, a higher number there. You know, the higher that MOE number is, the more force that arrow is going to have being thrown forward because there's more of that snap back to its original form, more resistance on the bowstring itself. So really, a higher MOE and a higher MOR are going to be very, very good things. Now, there's going to be a balance in there. If you were to go too high in the MOE, really, really stiff, that's where the brittleness starts to come in. This piece is so stiff that you know if you try to put bending on it, it's going to fracture. You'll find this in the case of hard maple. Hard maple has a very, very high MOE, but it also, in, in, retros um, in, in comparison, has a somewhat lower MOR, bending strength. And think about hard maple. It doesn't bend real well, um, but boy, is that stuff stiff. And I've used the example of baseball bats before. While most baseball bats now are, are, are metal, the wooden ones that are still out there, they're made out of maple. And maple, when it breaks, it shatters all over the place. In other words, there's very little bending going on when the baseball hits that bat and it fractures. Um, it's very, very rigid, but low bending strength. Whereas if you go back 50, 60 years, a lot of baseball bats are made out of hickory. And hickory has a much, much higher bending strength. It's, it's easier to bend without breaking and a great rigidity. It's got that snap. And a lot of people tell you when you hit with a hickory baseball bat, you actually, you feel that little spring back, that snap when you make contact with a ball that throws the ball farther. This is the same property that makes hickory so good for ax handles. When you swing that ax and you bring it down to, to make contact with the wood, there's that tiny little snap in the wrist that accelerates that ax head, um, that ax, yeah, the ax blade forward. And then there's the additional spring and snap in the rigidity, the high rigidity of the hickory that really allows you to split wood. You know, an ax can be sharp, but most splitting malls are not sharp. They just rely upon the wedge and the sheer force and the snapping action of the hickory. There's an example of a wood that has high bending strength, but also a high rigidity and is also a good solution to make a bow out of. So here again, let's look at, we're looking at what properties we need. We need something that's going to be easily bent, but also something that's going to have that snap back to throw that arrow forward and a high MOR and a high MOE. So when I look at Jose George, and this is where the numbers themselves become a little confusing because they're really, really big numbers. And it's more about the comparison from one species to another. If I look at Osage Orange, the uh, modulus of rupture, the bending strength is 18,650 pounds per square inch, pound foot per square inch. The MO, uh, MOE, the stiffness is 1.7 pound foot per square inch. It's really high. But if you look at those those numbers can tell you here is kind of the perfect wood to the point where they actually call it bow wood in parts of the world. If you start looking at those numbers and comparing against other things, and I walk in my backyard, and if I'm looking out my window right now, I have a balsam fir tree sitting out in the backyard. So just out of, just for fun, let's look it up. I can tell you right now, it's not going to be a good bow wood. The bending strength 
of balsam fir. Now, what do we say? Osage orange was what? Uh, we'll just say 18,700. Balsam is 8,800. So yeah, like a third, not quite, sorry. A little, little more than half its uh, bending strength. The MOE of bow or bowwood of um, Osage orange is 1.7 million, rounding, rounding up a little bit. Balsam is 1.3 million. So, you know, not quite as big a delta uh, there, but it's still a pretty big delta. More importantly, if you look at the ratio of the two, let me pull out a calculator real quick, make sure I'm doing this right. We've got uh, 1.3, 8, pardon the dog barking in the background. So yeah, it's like six to one uh, on balsam over the stiffness versus the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the um, bending strength. Whereas when you look at Osage Orange, it's almost one to one. Uh, it's about one, one to 1.5 in that range. So you've got a, a very balanced wood in the form of Osage Orange. It's gonna have a high bending strength with a high amount of stiffness. You look at balsam and you think, you know, 1.4 million foot pounds per square inch is pretty high. Again, don't look at the numbers too much, but if you look at that that ratio of one to six, it's pretty stiff, but it's six times less bendable. That's bad. <laughs> so that means it, it may be stiff, but when you try to bend it, it's gonna snap relatively quickly. Balsam fir would be a terrible uh, species for making uh, a bow and arrow, not a good idea at all. So when we look at, when continue to look at various species here, if I continue to look at the like prime examples, let's take a look at European U. In this case, we have uh, a, a modulus of rupture of about 15,000 foot pounds per square inch and an elastic modulus MOE of 1.3 million. So those numbers are lower than Osage Orange, but similar ratio there, 1.5 to essentially 1.3. So very, very close. Uh, again, almost a one-to-one -one ratio. So therein lies the secret. If, again, you know what makes a prime cabinet wood or a prime um, bow-making wood or a prime tool-making wood or whatever, you've figure out those attributes that are important. In this case, it's about bending strength and rigidity, MOR and MOE. Examine not just the numbers, but the ratio to one another, because you can look at any number of species and I can look at Osage Orange and go, okay, 18,000 is the bending strength. Let's find another species that has an 18,000 bending strength. And you could be led astray pretty quickly. Um, you think I would know this off the top of my head by now, but hard maple, it's always a good example would, because a lot of us have experience with it, could be uh, a, a good option here. I'm on the wood database right now, looking this up, and their search bar doesn't seem to be working. There we go, <laughs> just taking forever. So, okay, we were looking at 18,000 foot-pounds per square inch for the modules of rupture for Osage Orange. For hard maple, uh, it's 15,800. So, like 18,000 Osage, 15,000. U was also about 15,000, right? Yes, about 15,000 too. So, so they're similar. But here again, 
It's a very, very high number, but you've got an elastic modulus of hard maple that's really, really high. Um, and it's not, the, the ratio there is one to four. So it's not quite as bad as, as balsam fir, but it's not one to one like you would with, with uh, Osage orange and with English yew. So here is the, the lesson that's coming from this. Understand what properties you need. Does it need to be hard? Does it need to be bendable? Does it need to be rigid? You know, um, what is that property that makes it important? It makes it a good species for cabinet making, tool making, bow making, whatever. Then examine that and compare it to other species. And that's the best way to determine if this is going to be a good species for, for the same application. Uh, it's interesting because, um, Eric Meyer, the guy behind the wood database, uh, many, many years ago, five or six years ago, wrote an article about bow woods. And he came up with a kind of a, a calculation about uh, what would make a good bow wood and started just running it through his database. And he came up with four or five other species of wood around the world that could be possible um, good woods to make a bow from. And it was really interesting because you don't hear about, you know, Madagascar rosewood in the terms of making a bow. But the numbers play out that it actually could be better than Osage Orange, than Bois d'Arc itself for making a bow and arrow. And this is just not a bow and an arrow, just a bow. Arrow would be a whole other thing, whole other thing, <laughs> which could be a topic for another discussion. What do we need with an arrow? It needs to be light, it needs to be straight, you know, totally different thing there. But you get the point. Understand what you want, figure out which technical properties tie to that, and go from there. So yeah, I just thought I would play around with that because it came up on Wood Talk and thought it was a particularly interesting example of using those technical properties to figure out, is this the right wood or not? So if something like that comes up in the future, if you guys have specific questions around that, or if you're wondering what wood would be good for this application, let me know. Um, right into the show, you can always reach me at uh, lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can find me on my Instagram, also Lumber Update, uh, or just go to lumberupdate.com and you can leave a comment there as well. So I wanted to get on to just a couple of questions that I had, and then I'll wrap up this show. Um, Kevin reached out to me on Instagram, and he is uh, getting into wood turning. And he's new enough, but has discovered the joy of turning green wood and just how much easier it is. But, you know, you turn a green bowl and it still needs to dry. So he said, could I possibly take uh, a rough turned bowl and put it in the microwave in order to pull out that moisture, or do I just need to be patient and let it air dry normally? So here's the thing, you know, and I didn't Google this, and I'm sure if you Google it, there's somebody that's probably tried this. In theory, it should work, Kevin, because what is an RF vacuum kiln, radio frequency vacuum kiln is nothing more than a big microwave. It's sending radio waves into the wood to essentially excite the molecules in, in the water and have them to boil off. Now, combine that with a vacuum where you're lowering the boiling point of water and it doesn't take a whole lot of, of excitement of those molecules to get them to boil off. A microwave, certainly shorter wavelengths than radio, that's why it's called a microwave, that is going to excite the molecules in the, in the water um, a little bit easier and cause that to evaporate out, right? Essentially boil off inside the microwave. The question is, is it too aggressive? Will it actually um, 
heat up the wood too much, will it cause more problems than it saves? I don't honestly know. Here's the thing about turning bowls. When you rough turn a bowl, you leave it maybe a little bit thicker and you let it dry and you let it warp and move out of round and then you put it back on the lathe and you turn it round again and so doing you've thinned out the walls. There are also some who say go ahead and turn it close to real final thickness because the thinner it is the faster it's going to dry and also the less deformation you might see because there's just not as much fiber um, not as much thickness to actually react to this and it'll be a little bit more pliable a little bit more moldable. If you are turning bowls and you're finding that it's taking a really, really long time to dry, you're probably not turning them thin enough. Turn them a little bit thinner, wrap them in the paper bag, um, and let them sit. And it's not like you're letting them sit for months and months on end. In many instances, you can come back a week later and you're good to go. And you know, a lot of, of, of professional turners, they just basically have this constant turnover in their shop. They turn a bunch of rough bowls one day and they continue to turn rough bowls every single day, but then they're also pulling some off the shelf and finish turning them at the same time. So you've kind of got this constant supply running through. I would wager to bet though for the obvious, the, the basic hobbyist, there's not going to be that much time in drying. And if it is that much time in drying, turn it a little bit thinner. It's really not going to take that long. But Kevin, I put it to you. You know, most of us are turning, especially if you're turning green wood, you're turning it from found wood. So it's not like there's a lot of money being exchanged hands because you picked a piece off the firewood pile, you found a piece on the side of the road, turn it and throw it in the microwave and see what happens. I don't think you're going to run into many problems because it is still the same principle as an RF kiln. Question is, go slow. <laughs> don't throw it in there for four minutes. Uh, I think it'd be more of, you know, really nuke it for 30 seconds to a minute, see what happens. If it gets too hot, if it excites it too much, you might actually see a cell collapse and that would cause all kinds of other problems. So, you know, as in all things, better in moderation, but give it a shot I, and, and let me know what you come up with. I, I don't see why it shouldn't work. I'm sure that there are more qualified turners out there who are probably yelling at me right now saying, you fool, don't tell him to do that. But you know what? Sometimes we have to fail to learn. So go out there, Kevin, and fail wonderfully and let me know <laughs> what you find out. Um, William uh, sent in a voicemail and asked me about moving wood. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. Take it away, William. Hi, Shannon. I have a question about lumber as part of a shop move. I'm currently active duty military, and this summer I will be moving from the Florida Panhandle to Southern Arizona. Over the past couple years, I've gotten to find some sawmills that deal with local woods, stuff like Southern Yellow Pine, Cypress, Live Oak, stuff like that. Now, normally I try to limit how much lumber I have on hand, and especially with an upcoming move, I've been trying to reduce stuff that I've had lying around. But part of me thinks it would be worthwhile to stock up on some unusual and local woods before I drive out. So, presuming I have room at the new location, does it make sense to grab a ton of wood? Would dry wood or wet wood be better to ship and store? And if I am bringing stuff, which is a better way to transport it? In a shipping container or an open air trailer? Anyway, I love the podcast. It's always a highlight when a new episode appears. Okay, William. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, I actually have uh, come from a military family myself and also have quite a few listeners who are military. And this question about moving wood actually comes up a lot. 
Those of you in the military know that it's just a way of life, always moving around. So here's the thing. Um, obviously the greener the wood is, the heavier it's going to be. So when you start moving stuff, you're paying for the weight. Um, that can be a real issue. Now, if you're moving it yourself, you know, you've got a trailer and that stuff. The biggest penalty there is just your own back. You know, you've got to move the stuff around as long as you've got that, you know, the, the towing capacity and the weight limits and all that stuff. So you're not going to get pulled over on the highway. You'll be fine. But wet wood gets heavy real fast. Here's the other thing. Wet wood is in flux. A lot more changes going on in wet wood. It's drying out quickly. And not only is it heavier, but as you put it on that trailer, if you stuff it in a container with poor ventilation or you put it on an open air trainer with a lot of ventilation, there is going to be a lot of transformation that could occur. Now you're moving from Florida to Arizona, so there's a massive climate change as well. So the wet wood is going to be more prone to have problems during that move. Also, it's just bloody heavy. So the, the initial answer to your question is, if you've got access to some cool woods in Florida that you wouldn't find in Arizona, I say, by all means, go get them. You know, I mean, certainly the return on this investment is not real high. So think about that first. <laughs> it's not like you're going to go buy, you know, $2,000 worth of lumber and know it's going to be worth 6000 a couple of years later. No, it just doesn't work that way. It's going to still be worth $2,000, if not less. So this is wood that you can use. Don't be buying stuff that you're not going to have a use for. But I do think, you know, as a, as a, as a souvenir of your time in the Florida panhandle, maybe you come across some cooler woods. You're going to find a lot more cool swamp woods like bald need cypress in Florida than you're ever going to find in Arizona. Do they have wood in Arizona? Mesquite? <laughs> I don't know. There's not a whole lot of, of timber in Arizona. So certainly it's not a bad idea to do this. My recommendation is depending on how, well, my recommendation is to try to get the dryness as uniform as possible across all the species. And I don't necessarily mean it all has to be the exact moisture content, but in other words, you don't want to have green wood and dry wood. You definitely don't want to stack green wood and dry wood together because that moisture is going to swap. It's going to leach from one to the other. You also could have um, some mold issues stacking green wood because once you start moving it, it's really not a good idea to have huge air gaps and things like that to allow ventilation because that's going to mean less wood that you can actually fit in the trailer or the container. You want to dead stack it as much as possible in order to prevent things from shifting, but also to get as much in the volume you have available. So if you've got dry wood and green wood together, that can cause cross-contamination problems, if you will. So whatever you're moving, try to make sure it's all dry or it's all green. <clears throat> so then depending on that, is the answer to the question of where do you, how do you do it in a container or, you know, an open air trailer? If it is green wood, I would rather it be in an open air trailer so that you've got that moisture flowing through or that air flowing through and pulling off the moisture as it evaporates. You stick it in a shipping container, you're going to end up with mold. Um, it won't take long before that container becomes super saturated. And as you're driving into the Arizona heat, it's going to become even more super saturated. There's be no air um, ventilation inside that container to pull off that moisture, but it is going to bake from the outside in. Um, and it's going to get really swampy inside there. And you're going to have all kinds of issues and problems and possible deformation and even possibly cell collapse because uh, you might have actually just turned it into a steam kiln. So I would put it in an open air trailer. Um, you can certainly, you, you will need to tarp it in order to meet um, Department of Transportation regulations, but you'll have a little bit more airflow through there. Um, dry wood could go in a container without a problem. Um, 
but here again, it all depends on how you're doing this. Are you paying somebody to, to, to ship this or are you moving yourself? Getting your hands on a container is going to be a little bit difficult to do, but a commercial shipping company, um, that wouldn't be a problem. If you're calling a freight company and saying you're moving lumber, more than likely they're going to put it on an open-air trailer or a tractor trailer that has curtain sides because it's easier to load and unload. And that's the logistical side of things more than what the actual cargo is. It's easier to unload. With long boards, um, you need special lifts, telescoping lifts in order to reach in a container and pull it out, whereas a normal forklift can approach you know, 12-foot boards from the side, 15-foot boards from the side, and unload from there. So logistically, it's easier on an open-air trailer um, or an open-air container or curtain-side container. Shipping containers is how lumber is transported um, overseas just because it goes on a ship, and that's the most secure way to move this. But when we pull lumber out of a shipping container, there is always an acclimation period. There's always some interesting stuff in there too. Um, you'd be surprised what gets packed into foreign shipping containers and sent over and you find animals, unfortunately, dead on the ground and all kinds of plants and things like that that you know ended up in that container. For the most part, I think you're better off with an open air trailer just because of the ease of loading and unloading, but also you've just got, you're, you're not gonna have that closed in space, drying lumber can have real problems. And even if that lumber is 8%, let's face it, in Florida, it's not going to be 8%. It's going to be closer to 12%, but it's going to want to be at 4% when it's in Arizona. There's going to be a moisture differential and trapping a container could shock it when you pull it out of the container. It's not like it's airtight. It's going to be absolutely, you know, totally new when you open the door, it's exposed to the Arizona desert, but it's, going to be closed in enough. Whereas if you put on an open air trailer, that just the trip from Florida to Arizona is going to um, allow for acclimation. So you really won't have that much of a shock to the boards once you get it there. So long answer, way complex answer to a relatively simple question, but it is something that I know a lot of people have considered this. So um, there's your answer. And, you know, go buy some of that lumber. And uh, I'd love to know what you picked up in Florida and uh, what you found, what, are you, what you have found in your local mills that is of particular unique local interest. There's some really cool wood growing down in Florida. Heck, mahogany grows, you know, natively in Florida now. Very cool stuff. So that ought to wrap things up for me this week, folks. I've got a bunch more questions sitting in the hopper, but uh, I will save those for a future episode. As always, thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you for the guys that, that write in, send in the voicemails. Thank you for everyone who sponsors the show on Patreon. And uh, keep the questions coming. Love hearing from you. Love doing these shows and answering your questions about the mystical world of lumber. So thanks, everybody, this time. And go buy some lumber. <laughs>